Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to take in a, a trip around the world. I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about going, uh, a number of them being in Africa, but it's around the world. And towards the end of the episode, we'll stop by the Netherlands to talk about their farmer's revolt and the good old US of A, where we'll talk about oil. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into this rapid fire. Well, actually, not so rapid fire, because I'm going to be talking. <laughs> but we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So we'll start with Boris Johnson resigning as the UK Prime Minister. Uh, this followed a, the resignation of around 50 of his party members. And he's set up a sort of transitional government, uh, like a parliamentary type of government thing. If you have a parliamentary system, you'll probably understand this better than I do. But that's the situation in the UK, and it seems, for the time being, that the Tory party, I believe he is, Tory and Labour, he's part of the Tory party, seems that the Tory party, which got this incredible landslide back in 2019, it seems they've squandered the opportunity. I mean, they got got Brexit done, We we can give them that, and they, I imagine, the UK will be able to reap the rewards from that for decades to come. Although, many believe it was a mistake, including half their own country. But I think they'll be able to reap the rewards from this. They're free from the EU's regulations. And the EU specializes in imposing new regulations on top of its members. So, just by way of standing still, they'll they'll end up above the EU, who keeps going down and down. And and they weigh themselves down with their own regulations, as was best exemplified in a more uh, easy way to put it, instead of me explaining economics, the best way, the best example I have was the rollout of the vaccines. The UK had their things in order, and the EU didn't, even though the EU had countries manufacturing the vaccines. So just by way of not falling, the UK is going to be in a consistently better position than the EU. And that's incredible to say, given the size and scope of the EU. But at, it, the EU has no one to blame but themselves for that. So, they had this, the Tories had this massive landslide back in 2019, which really solidified Tory control, and I believe that's what put Boris Johnson... Well, no, it didn't put him into office. He was already there. But it solidified his grasp on power, and it was sort of, it was a mandate, a really big mandate. Like these areas that had never voted conservative, well, I'll just say Tory, areas that had never voted Tory in almost a hundred years voted for him, and now it seems they've squandered that mandate. They could have done whatever they wanted, and instead, yeah, they they've missed the opportunity. They missed the opportunity in a number of ways. I'll I'll throw in COVID lockdowns as one of the opportunities that they missed in that they went with the lockdowns instead of staying open. 
And, well, I, I guess you can't necessarily blame them for that, but they had the opportunity to make their own choice. They had, they've had all this time to deal with migration, which is one of the major issues in the UK right now. They are currently dealing with the North Ireland slash Ireland thing, and I basically said that they were doing a, a master stroke over there, which is going to give them much more leverage and power in this situation over the EU. But they could have done anything they wanted. And they could have taken the country in a in radical direction, for better or worse. But now it seems that they've squandered that. And Labour might be able to make a comeback. We'll have to see. Not too involved in their local politics, although there was a lot of stories coming out at the time about how significant that landslide was. But I guess we'll just have to keep our eyes on the UK as they're now in a very unstable situation. And I guess it, it's also kind of ironic, given that the UK, many countries in Europe, the United States, we were all talking when uh, the Ukraine war, the Russo-Ukrainian war first broke out about how one of the potential ways that this could end is ousting Putin as the leader of Russia. Uh, straight up regime change, like, you know, hiding it. That's just, if we just topple their government, we can have our way. And it's ironic now that the UK's government, because that's how they refer to what we here in the United States would call an administration, they call that a government. Excuse me. It's Boris Johnson and his government that have fallen instead of Putin's. And I guess that's just a, a bit of bitter irony. And I imagine old Joe, old Joe here in the United States, uh, may or may not be the next to go. But uh, Macron has lost a majority in his parliament, even after winning the presidency in France. He's eventually hamstrung by the opposition controlling his parliament. So that's uh, a government and a half have already fallen. And... I don't imagine things are going to be much better in Germany, especially when the winter rolls around and everyone re comes to the very cold and bitter realization that they have no natural gas. And I don't know if Germany is going to be willing to turn the taps back on. They could. They have two pipelines. But will they use them is the question that may or may not be on everyone's minds, but it's certainly on my mind. I see this going incredibly badly. It doesn't have to, but given the uh, trajectory that a lot of countries are on, it looks like it's going to end pretty badly. And, well, it's going to be very significant if the most populous country in Europe, outside of Russia, obviously, suffers a famine, and then its population freezes by the millions, the tens of millions. That's going to have a massive impact on all of Europe. So, that's just something I keep my eye on. But, uh, that's the UK. A little bit of irony there. Although, it's not the end of the world for them. It's not the end of the world. It's not... Russia isn't pulling up to London with tanks and paratroopers. But it is a blow. A, a minor defeat, given the allegiances involved here. And the things that have been said. But we'll move on. We have Sri Lanka, where protesters, or I guess in this case rioters, have breached the president's house. 
uh, I say house, but when you when you look at the thing, it's more of a a really big mansion. Like it's big, it's orange, it's made out of stone, like straight up stone, as if it was just carved out of a mountain. But uh, it's more of a mansion than anything. But it appears that the rioters have made their way to his house, and there was this really big crowd of people around there. And the easiest comparison I can say for modern U.S. politics is January 6th. And I guess it's apt, you know. It's their capital, that was our capital. And, yeah, you know. Uh, although, although, I, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I'll have to watch if there was video of what happened inside the, the building. Because a lot of videos of the January 6th thing was people just walking in single file lines. In fact, being guided by the the officers and the security guards inside the Capitol building, and well, they kept them in, in a line. They they were all just walking in a line, and the ones that wandered off into the halls, they they just walked away when the security guards told them, "Hey, don't be in here." And they're like, "Okay." Oh, no. It was, and that's one of the reasons I don't necessarily consider that a insurrection, because uh, if you when you look at the crowd of people at January sixth. And you realize no politicians got hurt. Only one of the the January 6th crowd actually got shot. They were the only ones to get shot. No politicians got hurt. With a crowd of that size. Making their way into the Capitol building. Where Congress was. They, they were there. In the building. If that was an insurrection, they would have held the building hostage. And it would have taken the military to come in to deal with this or the National Guard or somebody. That crowd was huge. It would have taken the military to clear them out, not a bunch of barely armed security guards and police officers, overstretched police force at that, because they didn't want to call in the National Guard. And yet, no politicians were harmed. So, well, that, that's just my take on the January 6th thing, but uh, I'll, I'll make the comparison here because the imagery is very similar when you see it, but I'll have to see if they went, if these uh, rioters in Sri Lanka went wild when they got inside, or if they were like the January 6th guys walking in single file lines, but that is uh, just a comparison to, for those who haven't seen the imagery, I'm sure you've probably seen the January 6th imagery, so easy comparison there low-hanging fruit so to speak but uh, we'll see if this gets the Sri Lankans uh, results because uh, they uh, they're pretty upset about the whole Great Depression thing going on in their country right now so we'll we'll see if the, this gets them the results they seek or if it helps make things worse and they just it just becomes a downward spiral from there who knows but uh, for now, things are, are chaotic, but not so chaotic that the country risks collapsing in on itself. But that might change by the second. Yeah, as all revolutions are pretty unpredictable in their nature. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see who gets put into place if this does really break down into a revolution, which is... It's teetering on that territory right now. The unrest and the riots, the, pro the actual protests in the country, 
it is teetering on the edge of a revolution. I mean, they just stormed the president's house. But uh, I guess that's not necessarily where the laws are being made, but it's a step towards that. So we'll see if that's sort of where the line gets drawn by the the people or by the government and they start cracking down on the unrest or if it continues and we might see similar uh, mass, how do you say, assaults or I guess people flooding in to the parliamentary building, if we see something like that, then we could probably say, yeah, they're probably in a revolution right now. Especially if they see if the military sides with them, then we'll know, we'll know for sure that they're in a revolution. Then you start seeing government officials get locked up and the random people on the streets, the organizers start getting put into places of power. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of Sri Lanka. They're in a very precarious position right now they can go many ways many different ways i'm pretty sure they're giving india anxiety attacks because they're right there off india's coast and um just like the maldives are aligned more towards china although we'll see if they do go down the path of forcefully overthrowing their government it'll be it'll be anyone's guess whether they align themselves with India or China or some other power. So Sri Lanka is definitely one of the golden children to look out for because uh, they can shake things up in the regional geopolitics over there very quickly, very quickly, and they already are. Uh, in other news, and this is a pretty big one, the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated in cold blood. Uh, he was the gunman came up from behind and shot him from behind multiple times, and he died. Now, there have been multiple statements that have come out from world leaders. This is a, uh, It's been condemned many times before. I am unsure if the, uh, the Biden administration has said anything about it. Because uh, at the time when I grabbed this for the podcast, they hadn't. So I... Not sure if they have issued a statement yet, although I imagine they would have by now. It was a couple days ago. But, I don't know. I know the Trump team made an announcement about it. But, it's crazy. I remember looking at it and be like, oh my goodness, this actually happened. A whole assassination. And it's, and it's not Africa or the Middle East? Whoa. An assassination. In in light of this, there's been talk, or actually I should say, that this assassination has been rolled into wider talks about the collapsing liberal world order on by multiple sources, namely uh, Tim Pool to be the most, uh, he has been being one of the most advocate, him and Dr. Turley, Steve Turley, I believe. They've been one of the bigger advocates uh, of that sort of thesis, that these are symbols of the liberal world order collapsing. And I'll be honest, um, I agree with them uh, on a number of levels. Now, whether or not him specifically being assassinated is a part of that collapse, I'm not so sure. But I, I agree with the general idea that 
the liberal world order is falling apart, as is evident by the rise of nationalist movements around the world, even in Western countries who the, the liberal world order is built upon rejecting that sort of sentiment. So the fact that you can get a Donald Trump, the fact that you can get a, a Brexit referendum, the fact that you can get uh, hardline border policies out of Hungary or Bulgaria or Greece and Poland, those themselves undercut the liberal world order. And the more countries sort of look inward for their future instead of looking outward for their future, well, the more that order comes apart. And you have, that's internally, then you have outside challengers, uh, with the most notable being big boy Russia, you have China, you have Iran, you have the BRICS countries, all these coalitions of countries who have straight up rejected the functioning of the liberal world order and have challenged it, not just rejected it, but challenged it, I would say that Yes, the liberal world order is falling apart and it's going to be replaced by something a lot more conservative in nature. Now, in how conservative will depend entirely on the region you live in. I imagine the Middle East, Africa, and East Asia are going to have a hell of a lot more conservative looks on the view on the world than whatever the West ends up being. Uh, although that's just what I can see from right now, things can change a hell of a lot, but that's what I'm looking at. Now, I don't know how exactly the death of this former Japanese Prime Minister plays into that, but it's worth saying that people are speculating that that's a part of the collapse of the liberal world order. But alas, this is pretty big. I mean, we haven't seen someone get assassinated. Someone of such high profile, too. I mean, he was he was, I believe, <clears throat> excuse me, the longest serving prime minister in Japan. So for someone like that to get assassinated, well, uh, that's just big by itself. I mean, especially for Japan. So from what I can tell, this has given uh, the ruling Japanese party a bump in support and popularity. And we'll see what they do with that. But... It's a, it's a wild story, especially at a time when people are talking about, will Putin be assassinated? We have a, a whole assassination in a completely different country. Japan, of all places. So it looks like Putin keeps dodging bullets and they keep hitting other people. But it's wild how crazy things are getting. And it just keeps getting crazier. I mean... I don't even know what I'm going to be talking to you next week about, but I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk to you about today, so I'll just keep on going. And uh, and I guess before I continue, I'll, since I hinted at the collapse of the liberal world order, uh, I believe the multipolar world order is what's going to replace it. And I guess liberal world order is sort of a, a piggyback on the unipolar world order. A whole lot of world orders, I know. But the unipolar world order is centered around the United States. We're the sole superpower. We're, we're the end-all, be-all for everything. We're the world police, yada, 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 all that. All that trash that we don't need. But, um, <clears throat> I believe 
not the collapse of the liberal world order, is a symptom of the collapse of the unipolar world order. Because we're not the only superpower anymore. In fact, I, I personally believe that the age of the superpower has gone uh, and we're back to the age of great powers. And that's because we've kept the peace, relatively speaking, uh, not, not necessarily for a lot of Africa and the Middle East, but enough for everyone else to come up. The, the floor was raised by the relative peace. I mean, the fact that Africa is not a colony right now says everything you need to know. Uh, them in India, oh goodness, India will never be able to live that one down. You think China had a century of humiliation, they still had a country. The Indians got conquered by a corporation in the 1700s. Oh, that's just terrible. But the fact that all these countries are not colonies anymore says a lot about the benefits of that unipolar world order. And I guess I have to give it that much, you know, before I slander it into the mud and put it 12 feet under. But I think that as that unipolar world order ends, because everyone else has come up and they've grown and you have economies that are actually equal and or larger than the United States, which hasn't been the case since we became the largest economy in the world around World War One. That, that, that just hasn't been the case. I mean, we had a trillion dollar economy during World War Two, which was more than Japan, Italy, and J I almost said Japan again, Japan, Italy and Germany combined did not have the same economy as the United States. Britain had a whole empire uh, with a quarter of the world's land mass, and we still had a much larger economy than them, like three? I'll say at least two times larger than theirs, but perhaps three. No one's ever come close. That's the gap we were dealing with that this unipolar world order was built off of. Now you have countries like China who have, in purchasing power parity terms, surpassed the United States by a couple trillion dollars. So right off the bat, the unipolar world order is gone. The multipolar world order is here already. And since the unipolar world order is gone, the liberal world order, which was built on top of that, on top of the idea that the United States is the sole superpower, and the things that would function in that world, like the petrodollar and international finance controlled by the West, Things like that don't work anymore. So the liberal world order don't work anymore. It's collapsing. It's replaced by a much more conservative order centered around the multipolar world order. And when people have generally uh, accepted this, although to a much more limited degree than I think is appropriate, when people think multipolar, they say, okay, US, China, Russia, and they call it a day. And they say, well, maybe if we throw in the EU there, we have four. But I don't see it that way. I think people are being exclusive towards the other great powers. Because we're still thinking in terms of superpowers. Who are the superpowers? Well, there's the United States. Russia can be a superpower if they want to be. And, they, and then there's China, the main rival to the United States. That's if you're looking at it in terms of superpowers. 
But if you take a step back and look at the great powers, suddenly the list of poles, since it's the multipolar world, they have a pole centered around the United States, a pole centered around Russia, a pole centered around China, where are the other poles of power? There's India, there's Japan, there's Iran, there's Turkey, there's the UK, there's France and Germany. Now those two are a part of the EU right now, but if any one of them were to leave, more likely France than Germany, well then they would be able to pursue their own interests. In fact, France does in West Africa. There's Egypt. There, there's Brazil. All these places can pursue their own agendas. They have the power. And when you look at it like that, that's a multipolar world. It's a, it's a, a whole, it's messier. It's a lot messier than, say, the United States being the sole superpower or the U.S. and the Soviet Union being the two superpowers and everyone else has to kowtow. Now you have a whole bunch of different regional powers who can influence their region in ways that even faraway superpowers or former superpowers just can't. Like China cannot, China can't influence the Middle East in the way that Iran can. China has a lot of money, but Iran has missiles and troops and oil. Now, damn near everyone in the Middle East has oil, but Iran and Turkey have much greater regional influence than faraway United States and faraway China and faraway UK can have. And that's the world we're moving towards, the multipolar world. So that's just a, my two cents on the end of this liberal world order and what I feel it's being replaced by and how I think it's shaping up. But that is a, a rant. And now we'll move on to Venezuelans. Who are uh, Venezuelans living in the United States specifically who have been given an extension to their legal protection. These are Venezuelans who claim to be fleeing crisis conditions in Venezuela itself. So they've been extended. They've had their legal protections extended by 18 months. The ECWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, have lifted their sanctions on Mali, which has enabled trade to flow from the country to the Ivory Coast, where they can export their goods, primarily cotton. And they're, they're excited about this. I remember we mentioned it in the rapid fire a couple months back. And this was, I believe, over an election, which I guess the... ECWAS has either relented on or they the elections have been held. Either way, the sanctions have been lifted and trade is allowed to flow now. So that's good for Mali. And in Europe, we have Nord Stream 1, which is down for regular maintenance. And that was Germany's lifeline. Since Germany does not want to use Nord Stream 2, they had Nord Stream. They still had Nord Stream 1. But now Nord Stream 1 is down for maintenance at the worst possible time. And they're not opening Nord Stream 2 yet, or maybe if at all. So Germany is now, as of right now, officially cut off completely from Russian gas. All their direct lines of Russian gas are cut off. So now, 
now reality hits Germany incredibly hard. And in a way that Germany probably will not appreciate very much, if at all. Because they depend on that gas a lot. It's not coming anymore. And honestly, I don't know if they'll even resume the gas flows once Nord Stream 1 is back up and running. I don't, I don't know how long these repairs or the maintenance is going to take. I'd imagine it'll be a few months. So, presumably, it'll be back up in time for them to use it before winter. But will they? That, that's the staggering question that won't leave my mind regarding Germany. I know I bring it up so much every episode, but, but will they? Because th for them, it's a choice. The pain is a choice. They have a direct lifeline to Russia, their primary natural gas uh, supplier. They have a direct lifeline. They're, they're like Belarus. They have a direct line. They're like Ukraine. They have a direct line. Very few other countries have this sort of direct line to their main producer, their main suppliers, with regards to energy. The rest of Western Europe certainly doesn't. Germany has the direct line. They don't have to be in the situation they're, they're choosing to be in, but they're choosing to be in this situation. And it, it, it just leaves the question, will they? use the lifelines they have and i don't know they could they could pull a 180 tomorrow and start tapping Nord Stream one and two and bring those gas prices down in germany at the very least because a lot of their industries are, are hurting really badly from these high energy prices and europe was already known for its high energy prices to begin with but now they're even higher so those industries that were still able to function in that high-cost environment are now being forced out of business. They're being forced to run at lower capacity because they just can't afford the extra energy. So what will Germany do? Will they bring in the gas or will they sabotage their own industry? No. I mean, what else am I supposed to call it? It looks like self. It looks like self sabotage. It sounds like self sabotage, and it smells like self sabotage. In fact, it even quacks like self sabotage. Will they bring in the gas, or will they not? I'm thinking that they won't, but they could. They always can. The options right there. They have the option. Not many other countries in Europe have the option. So. We'll see what happens this winter. And on the other side of the Eurasian landmass, we have Australia and China. Their foreign ministers have met to discuss stabilizing relations between the two countries. And this comes out as a, a part of a small series of meetings between their officials. Uh, and this is sort of them de-escalating from that trade war that they had before where China basically embargoed Australian coal and a number of other products, but the big one was coal. And Australian industry was hurt for a little while. They started trying to find new end markets. China was hurt for a while. They started importing more coal from other countries. So now they're coming back to each other. And I imagine coal will be one of the major points of uh, discussion. So that, that's what they're doing. And I'll, I'll throw this in there. 
that uh, we had a major missed opportunity, we here in the United States. Because we have coal. In fact, we produce quite a lot of it. I remember one article way back in like 2012 or 13 said like we were the Saudi Arabia of coal. And that's that's quite the statement. But we have all this coal. But we're moving away from coal because we have natural gas. Comes out of the our fracking for shale oil. But we have coal. What could we do with it if we're not going to use it at home? We could export it. Hmm. Who in the world uses coal? Africa uses coal. India uses coal. China uses coal. Together, that's well over 3 billion people. Easy cash money. And China cut themselves off from their biggest coal supplier a couple years back, which was Australia, at a time when we were renegotiating our trade deals with China. We could have filled the gap. It would have been really shitty to the Australians. Incredibly shitty. But it would have guaranteed those American coal jobs in a way that didn't require government intervention in our own economy. It just would have taken a trade deal. And suddenly they have an end market and they have employment. Steady employment. Good jobs in the heartland of the United States that don't have to go anywhere because you are still in business. You're not obsolete quite yet. Other countries need your product. So sell it to them. We could have done that. We could have, and we could have made a killing because China was buying so much. We could have stepped in. We could have even expanded production here at home. And we could have had a fair trade deal with China. It was the perfect timing, the perfect administration, let's be honest. We had the perfect guy in office. It was the perfect opportunity, and it was missed. It was missed. Ah. Mm. But alas, but alas, that's what's going on with uh, China and Australia. Major, major missed opportunity for us here in the United States, but I guess I'm just more America first than most others, if I do say so myself. But, uh, moving back to Africa, uh, 13 people were killed in Eastern Congo, that's the Democratic Republic of Congo, so the the big one. Uh, 13 people were killed in East Congo, presumably by the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, a militant group functioning or operating out of the eastern parts of the country, where they have these dense jungles, so it's really easy to do hit and run attacks and get away with it. So major unrest in Congo, and it's really heavily packed, uh, how do I put this, a really resource-rich area of the country, which is the east, where most of their mining and mineral extraction operations are happening, and a lot of their infrastructure projects as well. So this is sort of the last place you want this sort of instability. But um, they have joined the East African community. So, perhaps this won't be the end of the world. I, I imagine that when that thing becomes a federation, oh boy, there'll be a... There'll be, if not a great power, definitely there'll be a regional power immediately. Like, this is just 
insane, the potential that they have when, when they work together. But uh, in other news, the Russians have destroyed, they've begun destroying local arms and munitions depots around the city of Artemovsk, which is in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and they have killed or injured somewhere around 300 Ukrainian troops. Some numbers are put it higher than that. Uh, some estimates, I should say, put the number higher than that. But I'll say 300 as a safe guesstimate. So, it seems like the Ukrainians are just losing city after city now. Like, uh, if you think back uh, just a month ago. Just a month ago, everyone was talking about Mariupol. And even when, when Mariupol was majority occupied, we were talking about Azov style. Just like a month or two ago. Sieges took ages. And now these sieges happen in a matter of weeks. And then the city falls. Sometimes in days. And I brought up in the last episode, they're losing all this easily defensible terrain. The urban environment, the hills, the, the forests. They're losing this defensible terrain. And at a certain point, their backs are going to be to the plains of Ukraine. Where there's no defense except for the cities. Which, interestingly enough, the city has proven to... that They've proven that they are still the most defensible structure. The most defensible man-made structure in warfare. Which was also true back during World War II. World War I, it was a trench. World War II, it was the city. Uh, case in point, Stalingrad. So you have cities being the most defensible locations, and that stayed true all the way up through the War on Terror. Sure, you had people in mountains, but what was even worse than mountains were people in cities where they could shoot at you and then fade away into the civilian populace. The only way you could kill cells of them, of these uh, fighters, whatever you want to call them, freedom fighters, terrorists, the only way you could get at them was either going into the city and doing door-to-door -door raiding, or you'd have to bomb a whole block. And once you bomb the block, congratulations, now you have rubble, which they can hide behind. It's The city remains the most defensible man-made structure in war. So once they, the Euro, almost said the Europeans, once the Ukrainians get pushed out of the eastern parts of their country where they have all that rough terrain, the next line that they can go to is the Dnieper, and any other city between the east and the Dnieper. Only the cities and the rivers are the only places that they can hide behind once they get pushed out of the east. Because the Russians can storm into the north very easily. They demonstrated that. In which the north is the other place where they have rough terrain. Those are like marshes. And the radiation zone of Chernobyl. But they can lose the rest of their country, even if they are able to defend those, because the Russians are not coming in from the north, not right now. The Russians are coming in from the east and from the south. So that's all flat terrain. It'll be very interesting to see how well the Ukrainian war effort goes from here. Although Ukraine has announced that they will be doing a counteroffensive, uh, a million-man counteroffensive, 
in the coming days or weeks. Why they would announce this, I don't know. Maybe it's deception and they're not actually planning on doing anything. Or maybe it's to make the entire Russian line uh, believe that they're going to be attacked and Russia has to spread its resources across the entire line when really they're just going to do a tactical strike on a smaller area where they can concentrate their forces. Now that would be smart, but would it get them the gains that they would need? Would they be able to take back a city with that? I'm not entirely sure. The Ukrainians have not demonstrated the same siege ability that the Russians have. So, and I'm not entirely sure if they have the heavy artillery to do it either, or the manpower at this point. They seem to just be getting ground down by Russian artillery. And the Russians are mass-producing the weapons and munitions for those artillery pieces. And there's talk of the HIMARS American multiple rocket launch system, which can also be a, a short and long-range missile system, depending on how it's used. But um, there are reports that we've used up a third of our own supply of the missiles for that missile system in giving it to Ukraine. So Ukraine, even with this upgraded artillery system, is on borrowed time because we're not producing enough missiles to keep the Ukrainian war effort going with those weapon systems. And what good is those? What good are those multiple rocket launcher systems if we don't have the rockets for them? I'll just put that out there. That's Ukraine. Uh, the Russian cargo ship, which was detained by Turkey, has now been returned to Russia. We made a segment on this talking about the importance of uh, what we're seeing regarding freedom of the seas and how we're witnessing the decline of it, the slow and steady chipping away of that pillar, which has undercut the entire world order, On which was actually, uh, speaking of, we were talking about the unipolar world order, the liberal world order. Freedom of the seas was a major pillar of that, and it was the United States Navy that made it possible. We're not in the unipolar world order anymore. The United States isn't upholding freedom of the seas. It looks like this, whatever this world order is, whatever it comes to be known, is really indeed ending. Now, now that I'm putting it in a even more broader context. And it'll be interesting to see what replaces it. I'll, I'll just say that much. I have my ideas on what I think we should do and how I think it will go. But reality is much greater and more entertaining than fiction a lot of times. Uh, there's been bank runs in Zhengzhou, China, a major city, in the Fujian province. Well, no, no, the, the Hunan province. There's been Islamic State, well, um... The Islamic State claims this attack on a Nigerian prison in Nabuja, which resulted in the escape of 440 inmates. And that's just wild. That's just wild. Talk about a prison break. And the, I don't know. How do you uh, respond to that? Do you go after the Islamic State or do you go after the criminals? Probably both, realistically speaking, but that's that's a lot of criminals to be let out on this raid. And Nigeria is in a really tough spot. I mean, they, they keep getting attacked like this. 
they keep getting attacked like this. And it, you can tell that they really don't want to be in the position that they're in. Like, they're really holding themselves back with regards to military interventions and whatnot. And they don't want to be that guy. They don't want to be a part of the this mass killing field, which is the which I call the Second Great African War. But goodness, the damage that for these criminals can do. Now, some of them will just try to fade away into the into their own lives. But some of those people are really bad. You know that there's a reason that a lot of these people get locked up. Some of them are going to be really bad, and some of them are going to do some really bad things. Maybe they have revenge. Maybe they're going to go out and kill. Maybe they'll go out and join. Here, and here's the worst case scenario. Maybe some of these people will go out and join the militant group that attacked the prison in the first place and bolstered the ranks of, of the Islamic State, presumably. Presumably, you know. i got to say presumably, because... Uh, <clears throat> You know how the Islamic State is. They'll claim everything. Until they're, until it's proven that they had no connection whatsoever. So we'll probably, can, we can probably chalk this up to an Islamic militant group. If not the Islamic State. Maybe an affiliate. Or maybe not even affiliated at all. But, you know, something like that. We'll, we'll just say a, a militant group. Call it a day. But... Worst case scenario is these prisoners get out and they join this militant group. Now you have an even bigger problem. Nigeria's in a tough spot. They really are. And then they have a... We have... Well, we're still in Africa. A whole lot of things coming out of Africa. I, I really gotta say. And this one's my personal favorite coming out of Africa. Which is that Zimbabwe's central bank is now selling gold coins to citizens to deal with the country's inflation crisis. And I'll say that we should do the same. In fact, we should go farther. We should go straight for the gold standard. Go. If we want to fight inflation. Inflation's on the a number one issue from American goodness American voters, especially with regards to the midterm elections, which are coming up. Everyone's thinking about inflation because everyone is thinking about how much more expensive things have gotten. We want to fight inflation. Let's go for the jugular. Go for the gold. The gold. Standard is what we need. Sound money is what we need. We don't need a minimum wage. And we don't need to keep making it higher and higher and higher. Because the inflation is just going to catch up to it. And then we'll demand... At some point we're going to be demanding a $30 minimum wage. I mean, we just got $15. We've doubled the minimum wage like twice. Since it was a thing. Back in the 1930s. I believe it was like... Just over three dollars an hour. We doubled that to seven twenty-five, which is actually more than double. Double would be six, like in the six-dollar range. We doubled it to seven twenty-five. Then we doubled seven twenty-five again recently, very recently, to fifteen federal minimum wage. Fifteen dollars an hour, which is again more than double. And yet, people are still struggling to get by. People are still asking for a higher minimum wage. And at a certain point, it's just going to be ridiculous to be asking for $20 an hour to drop the fries at Portillo's. No one in their right mind is going to pay you that much money. But then again, you're struggling. You're going to ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. 
we need to get to the heart of the problem, which is inflation. How do you kill inflation? You need deflation. If having more and more and more dollars in circulation is the problem, well, we need the clearly we need less and less and less dollars in circulation. I brought it up in my anniversary episode. A dollar in 2020 would be worth three pennies in 1900. That means that one dollar in 1900 would would be equal to 33 bucks in 2020. We've lost 33 times the value of our money. Hmm. 33 times. Or I guess specifically we've lost about uh, 97% of the dollar's value. There we go. Because, uh, the fact that it's a dollar and measured in pennies makes that very easy to calculate. 97% of our currency's value evaporated. But inflation, as long as it's just 2 to 3% every year, we're, we're good to go. No, 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 no. Inflation's the problem. It always was. We're just, it's so big now that we can see it in real time instead of having to wait years and decades to see the effects of it. But Zimbabwe is going the right way. They're going for the gold. And we should too. And I'm impressed. Maybe other countries will follow and we can get like a... A movement, some real pressure to, you know, fight inflation the real way, which is deflation. But we'll see. We'll see. And uh, in an interesting survey that came out of uh, Saudi Arabia, this survey found that people, the people there, believe that democracy weakens the economy. And this is sort of a small-scale representation uh, I'll say, of why forcing your ideology onto other people is generally a bad idea. I mean, there's a lot of people in the United States who brag about spreading peace and democracy around the world and then turn around and say that China, if they spread their ideology and their beliefs, it'll be bad. Well, we're doing the same thing. Just because we think democracy is good, just because we think that having these, uh, the separation of, say, uh, a government, the separation of, say, a legislature, uh, a judiciary, and depending on whether or not they go for the parliamentary or the U.S.-style presidential system, a separation of executive and legislative and judicial branches, not everyone wants that. Some people want their own way. Just look at Afghanistan. We had rainbow flags and George Floyd murals over there. And when the Taliban rolled through, they got rid of that shit. That's not their culture. That's not their values. And as much as we can disagree with it, ultimately, that's not our country. So we really don't get a say. Just as we don't want them having a say in what we do over here in our country. This is for us to decide. No matter how we might feel about our ideology and our ways and our beliefs, we have to recognize that other countries have their own ways, their own ideas, their own beliefs, their own values. And I believe that it'd be healthier for us all if we learn to respect those 
values, even if we disagree with them, you know. I mean, I, I remember listening to an audiobook about the British Empire, and when it got to the part about India, one of their customs was was widow burning, where if your husband died, you would be burned at the stake with him in a ritual sacrifice. The British put an end to that, and sure, we obviously we think that's a good thing. But understand, that was their culture, and we had ours. Now, we can favor ours, and that's good. We have our country for that. And I guess that's a really extreme example, but everyone has their own cultures. So, and this survey conducted in Saudi Arabia was sort of eye-opening to that. No, not for me, but uh, I can I can use it as an eye-opening thing for other people. <laughs> but it's interesting to see put on paper, like officialized, not just me speculating these sorts of things. But other people have their cultures. And that's what we all have our countries for, ultimately. We have our countries so that we can do things the way we want them, not so we can be forced to do things the way other people want us. That defeats the purpose of having a country. I mean, why would we have fought for our independence if we were just going to do what the British said anyway? Insane. But that's Saudi Arabia. And last but not least, Russia has publicly condemned Israel for actions that violated Syrian sovereignty. And they have demanded the unconditional cessation of these actions. And this is sort of more of an indication if... If nothing else, here's the indication that Israel is on a path to self-destruction. Like, I've talked about the numbers of them trying to fight their neighbors all at once at the same time. I've talked about the shifting dynamics, the shifting power dynamics between them and Iran. How Iran is getting stronger. Iran is building its alliance. The Middle East is more and more being centered around Iran as the power center. And Israel is now catching on and they're responding very badly to it. But they're responding. But if nothing else told you Israel's foreign policy was going to get it to crash and burn, Russia stepping in now on the side of Syria as Syria's ally, just like Iran is, Israel cannot fight Russia. No, 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 no. Israel cannot fight Russia. That is a losing proposition. That is a losing, it doesn't matter... What time of day, it doesn't matter what, what time of year, it doesn't matter whether they're doing it in the mountains of Armenia or in the deserts of Syria, or, or if they're shooting it out on the Golan Heights, Israel's not going to beat Russia in a war, especially if the Russians have the backing of the Syrians and are allowed to move through Syrian territory to hit Israel. Israel's not winning that fight. They are not winning that fight. Israel needs to course correct. If they don't, they're now officially looking at a war with Russia. And that's an escalation I didn't even see coming. Because Russia usually limited its involvement in the Middle East to just Syria. But I guess this is just Syria, so Israel was stepping on all the wrong toes here. Israel's not winning that war. I, I don't know what else to tell you. They're not winning that war. They need to back off. 
at least back off from Syria. That's at the very minimum. They need to back off from Syria. But once they do that, that's they're going to be forced to back off from a number of other areas. So... Israel is... I, I can't tell you. <laughs> uh, I, I can't tell you what Israel's doing, but I can tell you that they're going to get themselves killed doing it. That's what I can say. And uh, there's the there's a around the world for you, and we'll get to our two big topics. The, I guess if you want to call them big, I've gone for almost an hour before getting to them, but... Yeah, the two big topics in just a moment. Alrighty, we're back. We're going to close things off by talking about the Dutch Farmers' Revolt, and then we'll get on to Biden selling oil to China. But uh, the Dutch farmers have revolted. Tens of thousands of farmers in the Netherlands have started a nationwide protest. They've blocked the roads and highways with their tractors. They've set up sandbag barricades along other major roads. And the protests came in response to a new emissions law, which, coming out of this, uh, this, I mean, I did not finish my notes here, and that's why I'm so confused. The protests came in response to a new emissions law coming out of The Hague, which is their, the Dutch parliament. And the law would require farmers to cut back on their fertilizer and cull their herds of livestock. And these are in moves to curb emissions, uh, their carbon emissions, because they're going for the climate agenda, the green agenda, and it's killing their economy. Now, how is it killing their economy? Well, farmers need fertilizer to grow the food. So if they cut back on fertilizer, they have to cut back on the amount of food that they're going to grow. So that's going to kill them financially. But not only that, but... One figure I saw for how much of their herds would have to be culled uh, was one figure was put at around 30% and others higher. So a third of your livestock and who knows how much of your farmland, given if you're cutting back on fertilizer, well, that's financially crippling to a lot of farms. And... A lot of farms have already gone out of business as a result of these policies. So they have begun to revolt. And why wouldn't they? Lots of small and medium-sized farms will be put out of business if this goes forward. And so now farmers have revolted with large protests, which have been punctuated with some actual... some protests turning into actual riots. And there was even... One instance where the farmers sprayed fertilizer on one of the country's politicians and some of the government buildings. So that... <laughs> now, some might call that bullshit, but you know me. I keep it classy here on this episode, on this podcast, where I talk shit geopolitically. Now, all the shit jokes aside... This is having some major consequences on the Dutch consumer as well. I was about to say the Dutch economy, and it is the Dutch economy, but the Dutch consumer is feeling it immediately. There was a video of completely empty shelves, because if the farmers are revolting, nothing's coming to your grocery store. 
Because if the farmers are revolting and they're blocking the roads at the same time, well, n nothing can make it from the farm to the, the city or the store where you're at. And if that is the case, well, you're going to find out real quick about these protests. And I imagine that they're going to put a whole lot of weight on the government to cave. And they being the average consumer in the Netherlands, who probably wants to be able to buy food. And if the obstacle to that is the government, then they're going to put pressure on the government. And they could put pressure on the farmers, sure, but the, the farmers are already looking at losing everything to this law. Or at least a lot of them. The big farms will be alright. They'll probably buy up the land, and then you'll have monopolies. Or as close to monopolies as you can get. And such is the cost of regulations, even when they mean well. But the average consumer is going to see this, and they're going to be faced with two choices. They can either stand with the government against the farmers and starve, or they can stand with the farmers against the government and maybe force the government to back down and they can get food again. So we'll see what option they go with and how long it takes for the government to cave. Because, let's be honest, even the government has to eat. Although they can probably import what they want and that'll be a whole scandal in and of itself, now won't it? If they get caught eating food while the rest of the country has to starve because the government won't back down on this munitions law, which has caused the farmers to revolt, that'll be something. Now, I'm just speculating here, uh, but that gives off some major Venezuela vibes. I believe it was Nicolas Maduro who, on live television, just pulls a sandwich, this big sub sandwich, out of his drawer and starts eating it on live television while the rest of the country starves. We could have something like that happen in the Netherlands. I don't put it past politicians, but that is pure speculation. If it doesn't happen, you didn't hear it from me. If it does happen, you bet you heard it from me. But alas, that's what's happening in the Netherlands. And over here, in the United States, Biden, his administration, has been caught selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to a Chinese oil company at a time when we are struggling, to say the least. That's what most people will say. I'll say, ooh, he shouldn't have been doing this in the first place, regardless of whether we're struggling or not. But the fact that we're struggling makes it politically expedient to criticize him for doing it. Oh, yes. But why? Uh, I, why? Right. And it's a whole million barrels that have been taken from our reserves and given to Chinese energy companies. But Why? Why would you do this? It baffles my mind. Unless you're a traitor. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really speechless here. Because at a certain point, I have no... There, there's no benefit of the doubt that I can give you anymore. Like, what benefit of the doubt am I supposed to give to this man and to this administration when they're doing this? Like, the benefit of the doubt can only go so far, 
and this is way past wherever that line is, what benefit the doubt am I supposed to get here? Like, how can I justify this for you in my own mind? Because I can't. The thing that comes to my mind is a, a word called traitor and treason. Those are the things that come to my mind. How else do you explain? Like, why China specifically? Like, if it was some bleeding heart thing where, oh, we Europe is struggling, so we have to make sure our allies have oil. Well, um, I'd, I'd roll my eyes. I'll be honest. I'd roll my eyes. And I'd still rant about it. But at the very least, you have an excuse to be breaking the law. At the very least, you have a, a good-hearted excuse to break the law. But what am I supposed to do with this? You're, you're giving it to China? Why? So give the coal to China. Why, why do we need to give our reserves, the strategic reserves, to China? That doesn't seem very strategic to do. Uh, now, maybe I play too many strategy games, but that seems like a, a stupid thing to do. I didn't know this was the stupid petroleum reserve, because if that was the case, this is a great idea. But a million barrels, gone. And it, and the winter's coming. It's as if they're trying to put us in the same position as Europe, so that we can all fucking freeze together when the United States really doesn't have to, because we produce energy here in the United States. But we, uh, the administration just doesn't want to do that. So not only are we killing off our energy production and making ourselves dependent on foreign oil and importing foreign oil, we're giving away the oil we have. We're giving away the oil we have. Why? It's, it's insane. Why would we do that? Get this guy out of here. <laughs> Get this guy out of here. Uh, and some of the arguments that have come out around this as to, uh, and I guess I should say criticisms, because no, no one's really justifying this, aside from people who say, well, it's n not illegal, it's just, it's just the, uh, the way the world really works. It's, the world is corrupt, so these things happen. Well, uh, you know, maybe they shouldn't, you know. Maybe we shouldn't let our view of how things function blind us to the way things are supposed to function by law. The, this man is supposed to be doing this. But one of the criticisms that have come out around this is how it's diminished our ability to offset gas prices uh, both here and in Europe. Uh, because there was this thing came, that came out saying that Russia could cut their production by like 5 million barrels of oil, of oil per day. 5 million barrels of oil per day. And they could still do fine economically and that would raise the price of oil ridiculously and it would raise the cost of gas here by like five or six dollars a gallon and one of the criticisms was we don't have that petroleum reserve we can't offset the prices here at, at the united states in the event of an emergency but here's the thing that's a that's a secondary criticism you're you're dealing with the symptom this problem uh, I, I'm trying to put it in words. And like, if you don't have the strategic reserve, you can't lower gas prices. Like that—that's the claim that's being made. But it completely ignores the reason that gas prices are so high in this country in the first place. It—we don't need 
the strategic reserve to offset prices across the country, there's just not enough in the reserve to do that for an extended period of time. There just is not enough. We're not in a national crisis right now. So we shouldn't even be talking about that right now. The problem is that we are not producing enough oil. And the solution then is to produce. We could produce more oil and that would offset gas prices much more effectively than using up our reserves, especially to lower the cost of gas in other countries. Goodness, I mean, we used to be at a national average just two years ago. Just two years ago, we used to be at a national average of two dollars a gallon. Two. That seems like a fantasy now. Nowadays, we're Goodness, it's so, uh, I don't even like looking at the number when I go to fill up my gas tank. I just put my card in and, and wait till it stops automatically so I don't have to look at the monstrosity that's been created and that's being taken out of my bank account. I mean, honestly, we drilled for oil here. Just two years ago, we were drilling for oil here. National average was $2 a gallon. If we were still doing that, we would actually be benefiting from the higher global prices because gas would be cheap here due to the the saturation. There'd be so much oil being produced in the United States that you you just couldn't, you wouldn't be able to have high prices here because someone else could undercut you and you'd have to be at that $2 national average or somewhere around there, maybe $3 if you're in a big city, but that's about it. Two to $3 a gallon nationwide, unless you're in California, where it was $5 back then in California. But hey, I'm pretty sure they'd be begging for that now. But we were at $2 a gallon for the national average. Gas would be cheap here due to the, the mass production of oil. And we'd be saturating the home market with the oil, so we'd have to send it abroad. If we would have cheap gas here, and our oil companies could dump the excess onto the global market, which, if there was an if there was just that much, it would have the effect of bringing global oil prices down as well. But if the very least, if it doesn't bring the gas prices down, then guess what? Our energy companies get to make a killing. Off the high gas price, off the high oil prices, while we have cheap oil at the pump. Gas would be cheap here, which is good for consumers, and oil would be expensive abroad, which would be great for our oil companies who employ people here. Now, how much that would bring how much that would bring prices down for places like Europe, I couldn't tell you. I think they'd still be in a, a tough spot. Because they it's more of a natural gas thing for them rather than oil, which they get from Russia. Uh, the natural gas they get from Russia. They get oil from other places, but also Russia. So I think they'd still be in a tough spot. But regardless of that, America would be doing just fine. In fact, we would be doing great, just like every other major oil-producing nation 
with Russia and Arabia being the primary examples. They are not paying five, six, seven, eight dollars a gallon. And we wouldn't be either if we were producing oil. But instead we obsess over the reserves and what the reserves can do for lowering prices when they're not there for that. They're there to be there for an emergency. And that emergency isn't something where you, the prices have gone up, so we just have to use it. No, 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 no. Like, a natural disaster hits the south. The power is down. The gas is down. Now we have to bring in the strategic oil reserve. That's what that's for. But alas, oil production is the only thing we're not allowed to do. So, I guess we're just stuck with the problem. I mean... We could be doing great. Again, Russia and Arabia. Their consumers have low and stable prices at home. While their oil companies make a killing abroad. And oil, the price of oil per barrel is way above 100 bucks. A barrel. Way above 100 bucks. And yet, they're not dead. They're doing just fine. They're doing great. We could be doing great. What they have, that could be us. But not with this Biden guy. Let's we get this guy out of here. So we can have what is rightfully ours. Oil and low gas prices. <sighs> but alas. That's all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed this around the world that I promised all those weeks ago. <sighs> Taking a sip. Had some Chinese food earlier today. But uh, I got my water with me, so it's all good. But that's all I've got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We've seen some very interesting things coming out of Africa. And... Yeah, yeah, Africa. Oh, trying to think of another place, and I guess the Middle East, but really Africa. Africa stole the show today, and good on them. But that's all I've got. I hope you've enjoyed watching the podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hashan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.